Uh, well, I'm excited this morning. I don't have to give you too much of an introduction because I know you know Chris and you've heard him speak before, but uh, ask Chris if he'd be willing to come and share a little bit with us this morning and continue us on our Christmas series, God With Us. So uh, join me a big round of applause. Welcome for Chris coming to the pulpit. <laughs> it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning, but if I'm really honest, I have to say, I'm not excited about speaking, and um, that's because I have to tell my story, and my story is a little different these days, and uh, honestly, I'm a little nervous, and I'm a little frightened. I was very hesitant when Chase first asked me. I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. That's not an issue, and then I started thinking about it, and I don't really know what to say, and so I... I think the Lord has used this process in in preparing, and I really think that he's going to use even this moment with us together for me to work through some of these things. And so I think think ultimately um, it will be a a good thing. But the other part is I don't really know what my story means anymore. I've shared my story dozens of times, my testimony, how God's worked in and through my life, and I'm going to share some of that with you uh, today. I can do that fairly easily. Um, but in recent years, my story has changed, and I can't quite tell you where it's going to go now. And uh, so, yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by story, though. Just the idea of narrative, I think, is so cool. Um, I'm blown away by the, the story that the Bible tells us. I think too often we fall into a trap of looking at the Bible as just a collection of individual stories. And each of those stories have their own uh, little main characters. You know, we open up in the book of Genesis and, you know, sort of each individual patriarch is the main character of their own little story as we go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we get into Exodus and then Moses is the main uh, character, right? And um, you go first and second Samuel and it's David. And then once we get to the New Testament, Jesus shows up and it's like, okay, well then Jesus is the main character of, of that particular story. But one of the most significant things that I think we can recognize, and it's one thing that's changed my mind uh, the most about how I read scripture is recognizing the coherent story that the entire Bible tells. And although it's made up of individual stories with individual people in it, this book tells one story. And that story is the story of God working to redeem his lost people, his people that he had created, his people that he desperately wanted a relationship with, but fell away. One of the other things that fascinates me about a story is that stories because of the storyteller and the way that they emphasize certain details, can craft the narrative to emphasize or leave out certain things. And it completely changes the way that you would see that story. Some stories, um, you think somebody's the main character. And then in the middle of it, maybe they'll die off or get carried away from the story. And then you realize what you thought was about one thing was really about something completely different. I think we see that in Scripture with these individual makeups of of, of their stories. So the question has to be asked, what story are we living in? It's easy enough to recognize that we each have our own stories, that we're each a player in our own little narratives. And it's even easier to then assume that we're the main characters of that story. 
I mean, we walk around with the first-person perspective of our entire life, so that's sort of the lens in which we view the world. And if you need further proof, just think about when you get home at the end of the long day at work and you begin to exchange stories with your spouse or friends about how your day went. You're usually crafting the narrative of the events in a story. You don't just say, I woke up this morning, I went to work, I went to the post office, I ate lunch, I had a meeting, I came home. That's a pretty boring story, right? You probably got bored just listening to it because you didn't know how long I was about to list events for. You're sort of like, okay, wait a second, what's lunch now? So think about then what captivates you when somebody's telling you a story. When is the moment you sort of just zone out? Stories need some sort of a conflict, some sort of element in them that will keep you engaged. If I were to tell you that same sort of story about my day and I said, when I woke up in the morning, I realized that I forgot to send those samples to the client I had a big meeting with this afternoon. Well, now that list of events doesn't sound so boring. You kind of want to know what the end of that story is. Something's at stake there. Did I get fired? Probably. I don't know. (laughs) That was a fictional story. And so if we... If we read the Bible with that and we have the proper stakes understood from the beginning, if we realize what's on the line, it totally and completely changes the way that we read and understand this narrative. And that's a little bit the way my story has been working in my own life this uh, past few years. Um, I was born into a great Christian family. I feel like I was born on the front row of the, of the church. I was saved at a very young age, filled with the Spirit at a very young age, and uh, had a call into the ministry at a very young age. You know, uh, Justice, I loved your story about missions uh, last week because I, I too feel a very heavy, strong call uh, into missions. I, it was my dream when I was growing up as a kid to journey somewhere deep into the Amazon uh, jungle and minister to a tribe that had never uh, seen an outsider at, at all. Um, that dream quickly disappeared when I look at green things and my skin breaks out. <laughs> so, but that doesn't mean that the call wasn't legitimate and that call towards missions um, wasn't genuine. Uh, my parents were always extremely involved in ministry. Uh, I always felt like my dad was the children's pastor growing up because my parents um, were like the level two volunteers right under the pastor for the children's ministry ministry. And, uh, you know, and that sort of makes you self-conscious and aware when you're a child sitting on the front row and, uh, you can't win any prizes cause like your dad's the one who has to pick like the best children out of, out of the audience to get like the best behaved award. Even though if I wasn't on my best, then I would hear about it later at home. So <laughs> that was always kind of fun. Um, and my mom, she was, um, sort of, uh, she, she had sort of this reputation in our church, and especially within the group of women that were her friends, as like this prophetess. She was a very spiritually adept woman, very attuned to the Spirit's voice. And uh, she was that, that woman that everybody went to for the sage advice. And uh, if I could share a, a quick story about it, you know, I have a unique way of looking at, at certain things. And I think this story sort of uh, illustrates why. Um, I grew up on the lake, 
going to the lake, skiing and tubing and all the fun activities out there. And so my mom and a bunch of ladies went out to the lake one uh, weekend, and it was just them, and they were out there. And now there's 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 such a thing as called the Lambert family curse, okay? Which is sort of like the Griswolds. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong to us. I cannot tell you how many times I have been stranded in the middle of the lake or out on the side of the road, of you know, just heading down it, and then the all of a sudden the tire that should be attached to the trailer comes passing by you, you know, it, all kinds of stuff. So, per the norm, the uh, for whatever reason, the boat stalls out in the middle of the lake, and here we are, my mom and like five other women, stranded here. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. This is before the time of cell phones and all that. And so there's no real easy, uh, there's no easy way to, of contacting anybody and getting help. And so it's, it's uh, how do we paddle the boat, this big ski boat, over to the side and try to then make our way to some place to get a payphone and call somebody. And my mom in that moment said, she stopped everybody and said, you know, let's just pray for the boat. What? Let's pray for the boat. I mean, this isn't like people. We, you know, you pray for people, and okay, they get healed. But you don't pray for mechanical objects, and they suddenly are healed. But that's what my mom insisted, and so they prayed for the boat. And lo and behold, the boat starts, and they get on their merry way. And uh, that story has made a huge impact on me, and I've done the same, actually. I remember in high school, um, we were sort of uh, had a little prayer meeting before class and somebody had said like my mom's car was having trouble and I said let's pray for it and I've actually seen God do work (laughs) on mechanical vehicles but because of that so she was always willing to push other people as far as they could in their understanding of the Holy Spirit and how God would work in their lives Um, fast forward I was about I was going into the sixth grade. My dad got an official call into ministry. And so for my sixth grade year, we had decided, or he had decided to sell his two very successful muffler shops, sell everything, and move to Springfield, Missouri so that he could go to CBC in preparation um, for missions. And so we moved up here. All things are good in my life for the most part. I mean, that's a tough transition period. Get all the fun stuff for through junior high. But then high school hit, and my heart began to change a little bit. Um, I began to hate the pressure of being a pastor's kid. Because when we moved up here, my dad actually now was an official children's pastor over at um, at Praise Assembly. And so I grew up um, all through my teen years as as an official PK. And I began to hate that pressure of feeling like I had to live up to something, the pressure of people looking at me all the time and having to be perfect. And, and not just for my own sake, which was there, but to uphold the name of the family, right? Because if I do something, then it reflects poorly upon my parents, and how will the church view that? Couple that with a couple of bad relationships that I had, and my heart was ripe for rebellion. And rebel I did. I decided that I didn't want anything to do with God. He was somehow responsible for all the pain that I was feeling, and I wanted to hurt him as much as I was hurting. Now, it's not that my rebellion stopped me believing in God. Some people choose to walk away and stop believing. That wasn't an option for me. You can't have the experiences that I had growing up in a southern Pentecostal church and experience God the way that I had and just suddenly not believe in him. I believed that he was there. 
I just didn't want to have anything to do with them. And I wanted him to hurt as much as I was. I started delving into witchcraft, self-mutilating, and even became very suicidal. Fear controlled my life. And not the, I'm afraid to look around the corner for fear of what's there, although that was present. But the kind of fear that drives out all love from one's heart. I refuse to love anyone or anything, and I refuse to let anyone love me. I pushed everyone away, including my parents. I only wish for death to release me from what I thought was a worthless existence. I was worthless, and the world was useless to me. But God was not done with me. He had not given up on me. I remember a moment when the gravity of my choices hit me. I actually felt as though I stood on a precipice looking down into a dark abyss. I had come to the line in the road, and if I had crossed it, I would abandon God forever. I really do feel like I, I had made a critical moment. I had hit a critical moment in my life where I almost crossed a point of no return. And luckily, that moment scared me enough to say, wait a second, something's going on here. I need to stop what I'm doing. And I didn't make any big life-changing decisions at that moment, but I, I, I recognized it was sort of a wake-up call for me. <clears throat> well, then a series of events came about where we like to say God kicked us out of Springfield. We, moved, we ended up moving back to Memphis. I didn't mention earlier I'm from Memphis. Um, through a series of events of both me and my brother skipping school and my dad getting a new job in, uh, in, uh, in Memphis because that's where we was, he wanted to uh, itinerate out of Tennessee, um, my mom literally left Springfield for one weekend, went down there to interview for a job at a new hospital that wasn't even going to be open for another six months and look for a house. And she went in for the interview and found a house in one weekend. And by the time she got back, I think Monday, um, she got a call from one of the nurse managers there and said, you know, we don't normally do this, but for some reason, I feel like the Lord is telling me to hire you. <laughs> and so I'm going to go ahead and extend you a job offer right now before like, we're even really officially hiring people yet. And so with all the plan, and she found a house. I don't know if I mentioned that. We found a house in one weekend. And so with all those things in place, we were set. We were moving back to Memphis. And at the time, I didn't want to go. I didn't want anything to do with my family. I didn't want, I didn't want to do that. I had a life here. And, um, but it turned out to be one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. Um, we went back to my home church, which was uh, on fire. The youth group had gotten a new youth pastor recently, and man, that youth group was incredible. I remember one particular prayer meeting that my mom drug us to on a Saturday night. How many, how many youth groups do you know that teenagers are just voluntarily gathering, you know? I think there was probably like 30 of us that had just gathered in this one little room back in the back just to pray. And I remember my mom dragging me there, right? You're a little embarrassed because your mom has just drug you and your brother, who are clearly rebellious, into a prayer meeting that you don't want to be at in the middle of a Saturday night. And I'm just sitting there. And I remember <clears throat> hearing all of these other People my age, just going after God, man. Just praying with all of their hearts. Not just the, dear God, please help the world type of stuff. But man, they were seeking. They were hungry for him. And they wanted to 
they wanted the presence of God in their lives so that they could take it to others. And, and, and the evidence was clear in our youth group. And that's what, exactly what was happening. I, re- I recognized that something was different about this place. I had never experienced a move of God from people my own age like this. I was curious. Well, fast forward a few months and a bunch of different stories I can't go into, but I remember a particular service where youth pastor had an altar call, and so I came down. I remember sitting there saying, God, I can't do this anymore. I clearly need you. Is there any hope for me? And I felt, you know how sometimes you can pray a prayer and then you can feel it leave? I felt as if that prayer left my body, went up, and then came straight back down and slapped me in the back of the head. (laughs) I felt very empty after that prayer. But I feel like in retrospect, God was saying, prove it. Is this true? Do you really want this? Well, over the summer, through a series of... um, summer camp and a retreat, I, I, the dam burst. I did. God finally got a hold of my heart, and I gave it all to him. And I said, you know what? I can't do this wishy-washy thing either, anymore. I've got to go all in or all out. I can't keep walking this line. So at that moment, I, I made the decision to dedicate my life back to God, refill with the Holy Spirit, and uh, wonderful things that happened. Now, I didn't want to move back to Springfield at this moment, right? So I didn't want to leave Springfield to go to Memphis, and now I had some good things in Memphis. And I said, Springfield was my past. It represented too many demons in my life. I didn't want anything to do with it. So God has a sense of humor. Obviously, you recognize that somehow I ended up back in Springfield. <laughs> Called into min- to, to the ministry. So where do you go? Well, CBC, right? <laughs> I did not want to go to CBC. I, that was the last place. I was like, nah, I'll go to... Southeastern or Sagu or someplace else, but I'm not, I'm not going to CBC. Well, again, God calls me to CBC. And uh, this is where my journey sort of took another turn. Through Bible college and then in seminary, um, it, it taught me a different love for the scriptures and for theology. There in the classroom, in these academic settings, I began to fall in love with the word in a way that I had never known before. Number one, I always thought what we read in Scripture is, is only as relevant as to what the application portion of the, the sermon is. Or if you're in a small group, it's the what does that mean to me portion. But I didn't know that these words and what God was doing in this story could have any other effect in my life to actually know him. And then how that played a role in how I lived. CBC taught me this. Studying theology taught me this. Now, theology for a lot of people is an intimidating word, and I, and I get that. Josh and I tried to start a whole uh, blog and podcast just to debunk that theory, which had some success, I suppose, but not, the, not as much as we wanted up to. Um, people tend to think of dry, academic old men using big words to talk about things that have no bearing on one's life at all. But I found that nothing could be further from the truth. Theology is intended to be the way in which we learn to know God. Anything that you think about God, this is the biggest irony to me, is um, when people say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I don't like that theology. I just want to follow Jesus. That's an interesting theology you have. (laughs) (laughs) Following Jesus is the goal, by the way, if you're somebody who thinks that. I'm not putting that down. That is absolutely the goal. But that should be the goal of theology because 
Theology isn't to study God or to try to figure him out, but I believe theology is all about learning to accept and believe what he has revealed about himself through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so with that understanding in mind of trying to figure out who Jesus is, we have to understand that the story of God doesn't begin with Jesus, even though that's the point. He's the culmination, the climax. But the story really begins in Genesis with him creating a people that he desperately wants to know. They fall away, and God makes a promise. This will not last. I will redeem you. N.T. Wright, who Chase is often fond of quoting, has really opened my eyes to some things in Scripture that particularly have to do with how God has pursued his people. This is one of those moments in theology that I think changes everything because it changes the way that you view the world. It changes the way that you view yourself. can't help but change how you live yourself. God is passionately pursuing to be with his people. Some of the greatest evidence of that is just after he redeems Israel, pulls them out of Egypt through the Exodus, and they're sitting here in the middle of uh, the middle of the wilderness, and God tells them to build a tabernacle. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read one verse out of Exodus 25. I want the people of Israel to build me a sacred residence where I can live among them. You know, you read the rest of the passage and you get bogged down into the, here's a list of items that you might accept on my behalf, gold, silver, bronze. We, we, we just, our, our minds, because we're two-story oriented in our Western tradition, don't see the, the conflict. We don't see how that fits into the bigger picture. But if I just read you that, that one verse where I can live among them, we see God's intent. You see it even more. If you flip over into 2 Samuel, when David then tries to build a temple, he, he looks around, he's conquered everyone, and he says, man, I'm living in this great palace. How dare I do that? And the Lord's living out in a tent. I'm going to build him a temple. <clears throat> and what does God say? No, 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 no. You're not going to build me a temple as if you could do something for me. I chose to live in a tent. Why? Because it's mobile. I can be with my people. I can go where they go. I'm not a God that's stationary, the God of the mountain, like all the pagan gods are. So what happens? Nathan at first told God, I mean, told David that God was on his side. Go ahead, build the temple. And I've uh, lost my verses. Instead, he gives him a promise that one of his descendants would be the one to build a temple for him. And that he would establish that person that would build that temple, a dynasty that would last forever. Now, of course, Solomon comes along and thinks, that's me. I'm going to be the one to build him a temple. So what does he do? He builds him a temple. And God does allow that to happen, and God's presence does come, and he fills the temple. Because God is a gracious God who will strive with us, no matter how shortcome we might be. But what he didn't recognize was that Jesus was the one that was going to come and build that temple. Jesus was the temple. And he wanted to make us his temple to live in. 
He, he didn't want a temple that was stationary. He wanted that tabernacle so that he could move and be amongst his people. Jesus comes. He breaks the, breaks the bonds. And then the spirit can come. And now we get to be his temple. He finally gets to live and be with us. You want to talk about Emmanuel. It's true. We should celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ. It's wonderful. But let's recognize what God being with us actually means. Because Jesus coming still is very stationary. We all can't communicate and be with Jesus at once. But with the spirit indwelling all of us together, we can be his temple. Finally, God has got the temple, the dwelling place that he's always wanted. This is where I get to the part of my story, and this will all make sense. It's tough for me to, um, to talk about. A little over two years ago now, on October 19th, 2016, I received a call from my brother late in the afternoon. I was still working and finishing up the day by talking with the coworker. I don't really remember what we were talking about. But I remember we were kind of celebrating. We were excited about something. I know I had gone to chapel that morning, even though I tend to skip most chapels, most Wednesday mornings. I don't remember who spoke, but I remember how they made me feel. I remember it spoke to me. I remember God had been doing something to my heart in that chapel service. So as I saw my brother's call in the middle of the conversation, I just sensed a voicemail. We were so close to finishing up our conversation, so I just, but then another call came. We were really close, so I just hit it again real quick. Now, we had a rule in my family growing up that you always answered the phone because you never knew who might be calling and who might have died. We had that rule because my mom had suffered through the death of her sister and niece, both lost to cancer. She also lost her father to a heart attack a few years before I was born. My mom had impressed upon me and my brother how important it was to answer the phone, especially if you received the call more than once from the same person. So I knew when my brother called me the second time that I needed to call him back immediately. It was code that it was urgent and important. So when I received the third call, I had to immediately end my conversation and answer the phone. I turned in the hallway to go back to my office, which was only about 20 feet away. Ten feet away, I hear that my brother is clearly upset and crying. I feared his girlfriend, who he'd just started dating and broken up with him, and that I would uh, be called upon to give comfort and emotional support. But I'll never forget our short conversation. I asked, is everything all right? He said, no, it's pretty terrible. Again, thinking it was love life troubles, I asked, what happened? Five feet from my office. And he simply replied, mom's dead. She shot herself. I didn't make it to my office. As my knees gave way and I collapsed into a chair just outside my office, are you kidding, was all I could say over and over again. As my mind tried to make sense of what I had just heard. As the world around me disappeared, I felt as though I were slipping into a dream, trying to wake up at being pulled into a world that couldn't possibly be reality.
dealing with that aftermath and trying to cope with what life looked like after that. Again, there's too much to go into, but I hope at least how I craft this story will give you some indication of what I want us to take away and how God has worked in my life. I had gone to seminary. I knew the stages of grief. I sort of knew what was to come. I'd even made sort of a joking comment about it that evening when I had gotten home and broke the news to my wife. I thank God, though, for the knowledge that I have of him, for the work that he had done in my life, both through the story that I had shared earlier about falling away and coming back, but more so for my time at Bible college and in seminary to learn to love his word, to to learn to rely on what he had said about me, what I meant to him. In that respect, I think theology saved my life because I was able to cleave to those promises of God. I knew who Jesus was, and I knew that sin worked in this world to take away those that we love whether by suicide, old age, whatever the reason may be. I was tempted to be angry, and there were moments that I was. But I got through it because I could lean on the knowledge that God had not abandoned me. And I believe that he did not abandon my mother. In fact, I believe he was there with her at the end, begging his daughter not to go through with what the enemy had placed in her mind. For no matter how much I wept for my mother, I believe he wept more. I know at this point, lots of questions are coming up in people's minds, and I'm not going to go into details right now just because it's just not the point that I want to make. What the point that I want to make is the grace that God has given me through the last two years and that learning to walk in his word and understand who he is is then made so much more real by having to walk with it day by day. I have felt God's grace and presence in my life like I never have before. I knew I had to throw myself entirely into his presence if I was going to survive. As is often recounted in the lives of Christians, it's usually during the most difficult times of your life that you feel God's presence the most. And I have found that to be the case for myself as well. I began to grow so much. I often call this eight-month period of like the fastest, most growth, personal, spiritual that I've ever had in my life. And I had to do it just simply to survive. Because as I mentioned earlier, ever since I was in high school, I've suffered from my own suicidal thoughts and my own bouts of depression. Experiencing this for myself, it's kind of funny. I have mixed thoughts where I see the impact of it. How could I ever think to do something like that to the people that I love? And yet at the same time, I can be extremely gracious towards my mother because I I understand that pain. I understand that that desire to just be rid of everything, to let it all go, to let that pain go. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just wave it away? But that's the enemy. Those are the effects of sin on our life. Those are our spiritual lives crying out 
against this world, against the fallen nature that says something is wrong with this. This is not the way that it was intended to be. And in those moments, we look up and we see God standing there with his arms outstretched saying, you're right. This is not the way that it should be. This is why he came. This is why he desires to be with us, is to take away those pains. I know many of us in here are suffering through our own pain. I mean, Barry, you just lost your dad, man. It's not the way it's meant to be. But God is with us. If nothing else during this Christmas season, it's it's very hard on families a lot of times for these reasons. But let's really celebrate and recognize what it means for Jesus to give up, to empty himself of all glory, of all majesty, to take the lowly place of a servant. A servant who's willing to wash his own students' feet and then to die for them in the most humiliating, painful way possible, so that that does not have to be our reality. I love Paul's line in 2 Thessalonians, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians, when he's addressing the resurrection of the dead to the church. It's often thought that they must have been um, complaining to Paul, saying things like, uh, well, what's going to happen to our relatives, our loved ones who've died? What's going to happen to them? Paul takes that moment, where he could have said, it's okay. They're in, they're in heaven with Jesus. He's got them. While that may be true, that's not what Paul decides to take. He instead decides to say, there's hope for them. For they will be resurrected first on judgment day. When Christ returns, they will be alive. And that is what we as Christians look forward to. That is what my hope is in now. So two years after my mom has passed away, does it still hurt? Absolutely it does. And I will live with that for the rest of my life. But it also has been a tool that God has used to shape me into who I am today and who I will become tomorrow. And as I started out saying, I don't know what all this means. I'm still trying to make sense of it. I don't know how this is going to play into the grand story of my life. But I hope in some small way That my life could just become a few pages of the story of God's redemption and history written upon it. Both for myself, for you, and for others that I will encounter. So I want to invite you today, that no matter what your story is, to embrace it. Embrace it not because it's yours, and doing so will help you deal with it and best move forward. I do believe that's true. But I want you to embrace your story because it's not really yours. I want you to recognize that your story, no matter how good or bad, blessed or cursed, is doing something beyond you. It is only one small page in the book of eternity on which God's story of redemption is written. God is doing a work in your life and mine, even today. Let us not forget whose story this is, who we live for. We have died to ourselves so that we may have life with him. This means we have given our stories over to him to do with as he sees fit. And no matter the cost, no matter what we face in life, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We will recognize 
that he is with us. We do not walk alone. This is not some tragic tale written by some faraway God. This is a story in which he walks with us. He left his heavenly home to be with us. You are not alone. You have not been abandoned. Jesus shares your pain, and through it, he wants to redeem you. Through it, he wants to redeem others. Will you let him? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for giving up of yourself, Lord, and coming to earth so that you could be with us. I thank you, Lord, that you have not abandoned us to our own plight, to our own sin, Lord. When it would have been so easy to do so, Lord, I thank you that you weep with us, that you grieve with us, and that you're there to comfort us, that you're there to give us hope, that we do not have to be abandoned in fear and loneliness, but that we can rely on you and lean on each other. I thank you for the work that you've done in my heart, I thank you for this experience, Lord, to get up and to share with the group of people that I can call family, Lord. Work in our hearts, Lord, this Christmas season as we remember why that you chose to be with us. Change our hearts, Lord God. Redeem our stories so that you may be glorified.